On this episode of AvTalk, we break records, and we learn more about aircraft leasing with our resident numbers expert, Gavin Werbeloff. And Jonathan Koo joins us to insist he isn't an AvGeek while listing the dozens of lesser-known carriers he's flown on around the world. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here once again with... Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, and I'm surprised we're still counting. Well, I mean, I feel like that's how people know which episode it is. Huh, I wouldn't know. <laughs> you have never listened to a single one. No, never will. Oh, one day we'll have to figure out how to get that to happen. But nah. anyway, how we doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. This is good. This is a riveting conversation. I'm actually getting on a plane this week. They're letting you leave the house? They're letting me leave the house. They're letting me out of the basement. Wow. So I'm actually getting on a plane this week. I'm going basically nowhere for three hours, but I'm getting on a plane this week. Mm, nowhere via... Nowhere via Atlanta. Oh, of course. So, I mean, that's... I know the feeling. I've done that recently. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're just taking turns going to Atlanta and back. Ugh, I don't recommend it. It's too hot. Well, I'm going to do it. It's going to be fun and I won't be outside. So I guess that that has its perks. But we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. The first thing we should talk about is uh, I'm going to toot our horn and say toot, we, toot. we set a record last Friday. What kind of record? A most flights ever tracked record. What? Is I that know. because there were a ton of airplanes flying or more receivers or, or both? It's a combination of both. So last Friday was the first time that we had ever tracked more than 200,000 flights in a single day. It's a lot of airplanes. It is a lot of airplanes. And part of it's definitely the increasing number of receivers and, and the expansion of the network and all of that fun stuff. But it's also, I mean, there's just more air traffic. More peoples. More peoples, more stuff flying around. Yeah. Just a couple of days ago, on the 29th of June, the Port Authority here in New York put out some numbers for their individual airports in Newark. LaGuardia and JFK, and they projected 472,923 passengers would travel through their three airports. And I did some very, very rudimentary math, and it turns out that is nearly 1,000 fully loaded Emirates A380s worth of passengers. That's a lot of people. I mean, good thing it wasn't all A380s, though. I don't think JFK can handle that, nor should it ever attempt to do that. They only have, I think, four A380 capable gates at JFK, none at Newark and obviously none at LaGuardia. So that would go very poorly. It could probably land and stay there forever, but it could land. Well, I mean, it's a good thing it wasn't all A380s. Yeah, roll it into the East River on its way out. <laughs> no, because you would just have a bunch of A380s sitting out there waiting for a gate. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, I'll remember that. In A380 at LaGuardia, something has gone very, very wrong. It could probably land and stay there forever, but it could land. Yeah, I mean, it'd become a, a nice statue or something like that. Yeah, roll it into the East River on its way out. Well, I mean, a reoccurring dream to just have a funeral pyre for an aircraft. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh, well, we'll get to it eventually. Episode 100, that's what we'll do. Okay, I'll remember that. All right. What else happened this week? Because, well, it was a whale of a week. Oh, I see where you're going with this. Do you? I do. Okay. I do. Okay. You're, clever. you're very clever. Uh, not clever are, are, are you talking about the Beluga XL, perhaps? I am indeed. Wow. The giant air part, airplane part carrying new Beluga XL that just, they unveiled it fully painted this week. And I thought to myself, 
Huh? Huh? Well, if you look at it, it has eyes. It's creepy. I do not like it. <laughs> and, and I see what they were trying to do with this. I, I really do it's, see what they were trying to do with work. this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And if that's the one their employees selected, I want to see the other options that they did not pick. The eyes were just bigger or something. Or maybe the whale was smiling. Ugh. I don't know. Sorry, Airbus. This is, this is not a winner <laughs> of a livery. <laughs> the rest of the livery looks nice. Yeah, the rest of it. But the eyes are, are just like, what's going on here? I thought maybe it would be like stickers or something like that just for the, the video. But no, they painted them on and they're there. So yeah, we'll, we'll put a photo in the show notes that you can make up your own mind. But yeah. it, the plane itself, I mean, is thoroughly impressive. And this one is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's based off the A330 while the regular Beluga is based off the A300 or A310. I forget which the Beluga is based off, the the original one, whether it's the 300 or the 310. Either way, the XL is based off the A330 to carry extra large A350 parts. Mm -hmm. So yeah, now the Beluga XL can carry two A350 wings and other assorted smaller parts. Bits which, and pieces. Which was the, the goal. So they can carry build A350s quicker and, and other other pieces quicker. And, uh, the iCal code is A337. It's the A330-700. So if you're looking to track it, it's A337 is the, the aircraft code. Cool. Yeah. So that's supposed to fly relatively soon. Yeah. This summer, they're doing ground testing now, and they just said this summer for its first flight, but we're already in summer, so it's going to be soon. Yeah. Speaking of Airbus, though, they announced some other stuff this weekend. Oh, did they? July 1st. The C-Series is now officially 50.01% theirs. There you go. And if I recall correctly, there is a CS300 in Toulouse being painted into the new whatever it's going to look like now that it's part of Airbus. Stay tuned, I guess. So we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that one. Oh, speaking of Airbus paintings and, and special liveries, did you see the new China Airlines A350 livery? Part of it. Well, the part that's done, but it looks neat. I mean, it's um, toss a picture in the show notes, but it basically looks like the, the carbon fiber livery that serial number two wears, FWWCF for carbon fiber. But that one's like a, a black and gray one. This one's a, a blue and kind of China Airlines colors. And it looks neat, but the tail is covered up. So I'm wondering what they're going to put on that. Or Yeah, I'm sure it's going to look great because China Airlines actually has a, a Boeing 777-300ER that is half or mostly in Boeing's house livery. So China Airlines really likes their hybrid liveries. And they actually had a, a 747-400 back in, a couple of years ago at the Boeing house livery. So China Airlines just kind of, I guess they love this. Was it was thing. it the blue one for the it was like the regular? It was, or, so, okay, so it yeah. wasn't the the was it the Sunrise livery? I have or something like, like one that? terrible picture of of it on the ground at JFK. I never got in the air, but it was a pretty great looking livery. Well, a link in the show notes for that too. It's all special liveries all the time in the show notes. Piedmont's done with the Dash Eight this week. Oh, I know. Almost done. They uh, let's see. They sent me a press release last weekend. Uh, they're retiring the Dash Eight after 33 years of flying. They had the first revenue flight from Salisbury, wherever that is, to Baltimore. Took place May 2nd, 1985. They've operated 109 Dash Eights in three different variants: the Dash 100, 200, and 
300. They never operated the Q400, though. That's uh, too much plane. Too big. Too much plane for little Piedmont, but they are nearly done on July 4th. Flight 4927 from Charlotte back to where do you think? Salisbury. Salisbury. There you go. Right back to where it started. That flight should depart 6.33 p.m. from Charlotte. And I don't know. I guess some people will be sad. Some people will be happy. But they'll be operating Embraer E-145s in their place, which is – I guess it's an upgrade. It's an exciting time so yeah. if you're an E-145 lover. I mean it's got to be more eight comfortable than a, a Dash 8. Sure, sure. But I mean there's less – Excitement, I guess. Right. Less uh, giant propellers swinging inches from your window. Ah, but that's part of the fun. Right. Yeah. <laughs> totally. All right. I'm not a fan of turboprop. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, you didn't even catch the pun. I said fan of turboprop. Oh, I'm Come sorry. On. I'm Why sorry. Why do I do this? We'll have to go back to the beginning and do it all over again. Put a laugh track in. <laughs> oh, please no. <laughs> I don't even know where to go from here. How about the rumor mill? Ah, uh, the rumor mill. Oh. Should we put one to rest? Do it. I thought this was a very interesting one today. During the England-Columbia match, there was a rumor that Bogota Airport had shut down so that everyone there could watch the extra time. And I happened to have a website uh, handy. You may have heard of it before. Yeah. It shows air traffic in real time. Uh, our listeners may be familiar, but we'll put a link in the show notes. Sure. And I was like, what? I was like, if true, that would be very interesting. Quick check. Planes are going in and out of Bogota. No problem. And it's not true. And it was – I was kind of – I was disappointed a little that it wasn't true. There may true. be some truth to it. While air traffic may have been coming in and out, it's totally possible that airport or terminal employees just stopped and, and parked themselves in front of a TV because I would not be shocked if that did happen. Sure. No, I, I'm not discounting that there were – you know, some people – stop to watch and I mean there were a couple pictures of, of like airports all over the world especially Miami one was one where they you know everybody was crowded around some TVs but the flights were still operating yeah air traffic control was still working if a flight is coming into land and, and ATC says go around watching shootout I don't think that's going to end well for them no probably not but I thought it was a, a funny rumor and one that was a bit sad that we didn't you know weren't able to confirm so a few episodes ago we talked about the Singapore Airlines A380s or the ex-Singapore Airlines A380s that were coming back to the Dr. Peters group because they were off of their lease from Singapore. And, and nobody wanted them. Nobody wanted them. And so Dr. Peters said, fine, we're going to cut them up for parts or take them apart and, and pass out the parts to whoever might want them. And so we, meaning Jason and I, had some questions and – we got a few emails about what, how does that work? So we're going to start with a conversation with our resident uh, numbers expert, Gavin Werbelov, who's going to talk us through how aircraft leasing works. And then in a future episode coming up, we're going to talk to some folks that know a lot more about the end of life care for the aircraft and how that aircraft gets parted out and, and what happens to those parts and how that process is managed. So Let's bring Gavin in and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. We are now joined by Gavin Werbeloff, who has graciously agreed to come on the program for what will likely be a fool's errand and explain aircraft leasing to Jason and I, and by extension, all of you listening. So hopefully it will only be a fool's errand for the two people who are trying to help lead the conversation. So Gavin, thanks for taking the time and welcome back to the program. My pleasure. Thank you guys for having me on with Jason this time. Yeah, with I mean, we did our best to get rid of him last time, but he's back. So You should know better than that. Yeah, we've learned our lesson. Less Jason jokes this time. Or more Jason jokes, but we'll, we'll figure more. it out. So the genesis of this conversation came a couple episodes ago when Jason and I were awkwardly discussing the Dr. Peters group, which was the lessor that took back the first two Singapore Airlines A380s. And in the course of that conversation, we realized that we had no idea or virtually no idea what we were talking about and needed somebody who did. It became even more evident during the conversation, I think, is is what I was trying to say. So what we wanted to do is bring Gavin in and have him kind of give us a high-level overview of what aircraft leasing means, the different types of leases, why you might lease an aircraft versus buying it, and how that all kind of works its way through the industry and and who some of the major players are. So Gavin, can you give us the differences between the the two major types of leases? I think that might be a good place to start. So I guess really, really high level, there are operating leases and we'll call them finance leases. Operating leases tend to be shorter in duration and they come in wet and dry varieties. And A wet lease is aircraft crew maintenance and insurance, and it's basically the plane shows up, it's got everything it needs to go, and off you go. So we're talking like privileged style for Norwegian. Those are, you know, privileged styles pilots, privileged styles crew, their plane, and it's sort of a soup to nuts turnkey solution for aircraft when you need it. So it's what you as an airline do when you need an aircraft and you need it now because something has happened to your operation. Exactly. Exactly. You get them when they tend to be sort of different when it's either short-term cover or it's a different type, something that the airline doesn't usually fly. So, you know, privilege style and who else has been covering for Norwegian lately? Who hasn't? High fly, Wamos Air. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure my parents pitched in at some point. I don't know, everyone. <laughs> so yeah, that's wet leasing. Uh, dry leasing is just the aircraft. They tend to be for longer periods of time. So an example of a dry lease is Letam has been dry leasing a few A350 900s to Qatar Airways. Which is also currently wet leasing aircraft to British Airways. Yeah, but not the same planes. No, not the same planes, but it's just one of those funny things where it's like, you know, it becomes aircraft specific very quickly. It's mixing and matching. Qatar needs some A350s, BA needs some A320s. So Qatar got some A350s and BA got some A320s. Exactly. Everyone gets what they need. So that really is the operating lease side of it. And dry leases can be super long term too, unlike wet lease really. I I think it was uh, Eric Air had a pair of HiFi A34500s for like five years on dry lease from HiFi. And HiFi was very happy to place them. (laughs) Yeah, until they had to repo them. But those leases can go on for like forever. Yeah, and those two might have gone on forever if they hadn't been repoed. So yeah, that's a sort of operating leases. 
finance leases get a lot more complicated. I'm going to be really, really sort of simplistic here with because it can be mind-numbing and, you know, we might be a couple hours and Jason and Ian are asleep and the podcast is still recording. <laughs> we'll do our best to keep it going. So, yeah, when we're talking about sort of lease finance, I guess you get – it comes in a few different flavors and subflavors. You know, we were talking about Dr. Peters, who are basically an investment syndicator. They put together limited partnerships and people invest in their partnerships throughout a variety of industries. And they invest in assets that are leased and the investors get a return on their investment and the lessees get the use of the asset. So, you know, whether it's shipping, real estate, airplanes, they're basically pooling capital to go out and buy assets and earn a return on those assets for their investors. So how does this work in the view of like an A380 or any aircraft really? Right. So, well, for Dr. Peters, Dr. Peters said they put in an order for five A380s, or I'm actually not 100% sure if they put in the order or if it was a sale leaseback transaction with Singapore Airlines. I'm not 100% sure on the sort of the history of the origin of the lease. So you either have a situation where an airline orders a plane, says, I don't want to have all this cash lying around and I don't want to, I want to be asset light or I don't want to get sort of traditional debt financing for the plane. So I am going to put it, I'm going to sell it to a lessor and lease it back. Let's stop there for a minute because I feel like this happens with a lot of aircraft. And can you explain a little bit about what the benefits of that are? I mean, you mentioned you don't want to have traditional debt financing. So can you expand on that one just a little bit? Because I feel like we hear that a lot. So I guess traditional debt financing, the problem with airplanes is that they can move a long way in a short amount of time and you're not exactly sure where they are. So when lenders are looking at capital and you know, and they're lending to an entity and they're saying, this is my collateral, you know, this is my security for the loan, and it's an airplane, you know, they can get nervous. And a lot of airlines that are younger Airlines are doing well right now, but let's not forget there's been a lot of capital destroyed by the airline industry over the years. So this is not an ultra low risk affair. So you've got a borrower in a, call it a high risk industry and collateral literally with wings. And so if you're not a proven player, debt financing can be very expensive. You know, getting a loan, putting down part equity, getting a loan for the rest. So what airlines will do, and not just new upcoming, up-and-coming airlines, but very mature carriers, they will place an order for an airplane and ahead of delivery arrange for the aircraft to be delivered to a leasing company with a lease already in place. So they don't have to come out of pocket uh, with all the cash to pay it off because it's, you know, a couple hundred million dollars it can be with a with a big plane. The leasing company then, you know, leases the plane to the airline for a period of years. And then at the end of the lease, they can choose to extend the lease or they can just return it to the leasing company. 
there's a sort of offshoot of this, which American Airlines has been – they love called equipment trust certificates or enhanced equipment trust certificates. And so what they'll do is they will pay cash for the airplane, and a few months later, they'll drop a whole bunch of, of airplanes that they've bought and put their ownership into a wholly owned subsidiary of American Airlines. And then that subsidiary will issue bonds and pretty much institute, it's primarily institutional capital will come in. The big credit rating agencies will rate the bonds that are guaranteed by the parent airline. And so the airline will then lease the plane from its subsidiary who has borrowed money to purchase the plane that is busy repaying back to investors. And there's a big appetite in the institutional capital markets for these types of bonds. I think uh, Spirit, you know, who we all, you know, is not a very old carrier as airlines go, got into the game last fall and, you know, raised a few hundred million dollars in an EETC issuance at very, very low rates because there was a big appetite and there aren't, you know, with as much consolidation in the industry as there's been, there aren't a ton of options. There aren't a ton of airlines issuing these bonds. And so a lot of the institutional capital, a lot of the institutional investors, they were limited in taking, in buying more, call it American Airlines bonds or United Airlines bonds because they've got concentration limitations. So they have capital to deploy and Spirit is looking for, you know, money to borrow. And so they did a very successful EETC issuance. There were three different bonds with different, you know, seniority along, in a, you know, in a group, of, you know, secured by a group of aircraft. And that's how Spirit has financed a bunch of their planes. EETCs get kind of funny because they're in for a, a long time, you know, 10 years plus. So I remember coming across a document for an American Airlines EETC, and there was still like they were still paying, making lease payments to the subsidiary on a lease for a Fokker that had been parked in the desert for like five years old. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the larger players in the leasing world. And mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing here is uh, that a lot of these these very very large lessers have important sway not only over kind of the existing portfolio of available, you know, capital, but they also because of their their massive order books really drive aircraft development in a certain sense. Yeah, there are a few big players in the aircraft leasing business. Historically, it was ILFC, International Lease Finance Corporation, and they were eventually bought up by AIG, the big insurance company. And then when the financial crisis happened and they couldn't borrow money in the markets off of AIG's AAA credit rating, they were sort of frozen. And all the senior leadership left ILFC and started Air Lease Corp. So that includes John Pluger and Steve Udvarhazy, who is the godfather of aircraft leasing. And I guess... There are sort of when we're talking about lease finance, there are you know the the big leasing companies. While there are a lot of sale leaseback transactions, ILF uh, well ILFC used to, and now Air Lease Corp does put in orders that are speculative. They put in orders for planes, not knowing who they're going to lease them to, and so because 
of their long history, particularly Air Lease Corp and Steve Udvarhazy, because of his long track record in the industry and his relationships with airlines, he understands what airlines want and airlines need and what they want to buy. And so it's a lot, working with him is incredibly good market research for the likes of Boeing and Airbus, Embraer and Bombardier. So he was, you know, right now we've heard his name being integral to sort of feedback on the proposed NMA 797, which is under development at Boeing. He was also very important to the launch of the 78710. So he is, you know, if you want to call him a thought leader for the aviation industry or the ultimate market researcher or market maker for airplanes. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at some of the air lease, you know, most recent air lease press releases and, you know, delivery of Boeing 787-9 to LOT, A321neos to S7, A320neos to SAS, Sunwing, travel service, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, high, well, HiFly with their their Neo, the A330neos for HiFly. I mean, all sorts of, I mean, just, you know, random random things. And, and when you look at the the price, I mean, of course, nobody pays list price for anything in the airline industry. But when you look at the list prices, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, valued at 1 billion, valued at 2 billion, valued at 20 billion. I mean, this isn't, I mean, we're not throwing around pocket change. Well, maybe for somebody it's pocket change. But for me, that, that I mean, seems like real money. It's big money. And, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a really big capital supply for the airline industry. This is how new airlines start. Because, very, you know, I I don't know an air, of an airline that had enough capital at the outset to get itself to critical mass, absent some sort of lease finance setup. Virgin America, the the late Virgin America, had a fleet of sixty planes. They were all leased. So let's, I guess, close the the conversation, which I think we've probably caught up with, with talking about maybe the benefits here. I mean, buying a plane outright versus leasing a plane. I mean, there have to be some benefits to it. Otherwise, you know, these these large lease finance leasing outfits wouldn't exist. But can you talk about, you know, why an airline might do that versus why they might not? I think that from a business case, an airline's always looking for a return on capital. And you know, you're by leasing, really going down the rabbit hole, leases are priced, you're basically paying for the depreciation on the asset from the start of the lease to the end of the lease. So, you know, if plane is purchased for $72 million, and it's going on a three-year lease, and it's going to be worth $36 million at the end of the lease, guess what, you're paying a million dollars a month for that plane, and you're paying an interest factor on that. So, the lessor is recovering their capital because the airline that's leasing the plane is paying for the depreciation. And they're also earning a return on that capital, which is the interest. So for airlines, it allows them to grow bigger faster, which is, you know, for younger airlines is all about survival. And for older airlines, you know, when BA was pretty late to the game with the 777-300ER, and so when they wanted to add them on, they went to GCAS, who had a couple of slots available that for planes that they had ordered themselves, speculatively, and they picked up two. And then I think they 
did they executed a sale eastbound back transaction on a couple more of the planes that BA themselves had ordered. So it gives airlines flexibility, especially in that sort of developing a new plane is a new airplane is is a delay ridden process, as we've seen with everything that's new lately. And so when airlines have fleet plans and the planes that they're supposed to retire can't be retired because the replacements aren't ready or the replacements are delayed, they need a stopgap. So we've seen it with a bunch of different airlines and a bunch of different cases. It just gives airlines more options. Jason, did you get all that? I did. Excellent. I did. I did. There's there's (laughs) one thing I want to know though, Mm -hmm. and I think I know the answer, but why are so many of these aircraft, why do they end up registered in Ireland when they're leased out? Taxes. So I was right. Okay. I knew it. Yeah. Taxes. That's an easy answer. Should we go register ourselves in Ireland? Is, er, this is probably not something that's available to your regular regular old yeah, I mean, aviation podcast host. I think this podcast is registered in Ireland. <laughs> Interesting note, every airline that puts in an order with Boeing gets a customer code. And the customer code for Air Lease Corp is H-A-Z. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I guess when you order enough planes, they're like, fine, just here you go. Yeah. Gavin, I want to thank you so much for coming back and trying to walk us through this. I hope it was valuable for the listeners. I know it was valuable for me because it's um, you know something that there's it's always being thrown around. And so hopefully we have a little bit more of a, a footing to work from in, in future episodes. And if we ever get stuck in the numbers, we'll definitely have to have you back. It's my pleasure. Gavin Werboff, our resident numbers guy. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Gavin. Sure. And we are back having learned a whole bunch about how Jason and I are going to go out and lease an airplane. Yeah. I got a bunch of pennies on my desk right here in front of me. I'm going to keep saving them up until I can afford a lease returned, sale back, dry, wet lease 380. That is – yeah, okay. That's definitely how it works. All right. Yeah, I'm glad you were paying careful attention and we've learned a lot. So with Gavin, we talked about how some of the the lessers have a big impact on how new aircraft are designed. And one of the big milestones for new aircraft design happened this week. And John Ostra had a great article on his new, do we call it website, publication? I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it's going to be good. It's The Air Current, which I think is a great name. And his first article up there is about the engine design competition for Boeing's new market airplane, which we talked about in a previous episode. And so he details a little bit about what the engine makers are proposing and what the three top contenders are and and all of that uh, good fun stuff about how that's going into the NMA. And so that process is chugging along. I guess the question is, do we see an announcement at Farnborough in a couple of weeks? Maybe, 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 maybe not. Yeah, I never know what these air shows. Sometimes <laughs> Tune in in a couple of weeks. All right. Well, I guess we know what the next episode's about. Yes. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. But speaking of new engines, we've got my trip to Atlanta, which is going to be thoroughly exciting, I hope, if relatively quick. I'll be in Atlanta for all of two and a half hours. But that's the point of the story is that I'm flying down from Chicago to Atlanta on the A330neo. So I'm excited about that mostly because 
the cabin's new, and that'll be fun to look at, but they have the test rig in the mid-cabin. And it's a similar test rig to the one they had on the A350. And Jason, I, I don't know if you remember when we walked through this together. I do. I was on it when it flew to Chicago. That's right. And we had a lot of fun finding out all of those you know, things. So my goal for the flight is to definitely sit down and talk with the flight engineers that are there uh, to find out what they're doing and, and what all of the parameters are calculating and, and what all of the screens mean. And we'll get some good photo, video, hopefully, and, and go from there. So that, that should be an exciting, if brief, trip to Atlanta. But uh, we'll definitely have something on the next episode of the podcast about a little bit of the technical insight into how these these proving flights work. Speaking of Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was a, a young gentleman who managed to make it out onto the active portion of the airfield, was missing some clothing, and hopped on a wing of a as plane that was does. trying to depart. As, yeah. as one does when you are in Atlanta, Right. At least it was a T-tail, so the engines were way back at the back of the plane and not on the wing. Could have been worse. That's true It for everyone involved, yeah. But it just once again goes to show it is impossible to fully secure the perimeter of an airport. If someone wants in, they're getting in, If including drunk and or high and or delusional half-naked men. And this is not the first time we've discussed half or fully naked people on the airfield. And it will not be the last. And it will not be the last. I mean, when we talked with uh, Dan Kierna in operations at O'Hare, he said that his one of his favorite moments on the job, and I use favorite, the, the word favorite is a very loose term here, was tracking down the naked guy running around the airfield. So It's an experience, I bet. Yeah. It, it must be you know the, a rite of passage for airfield uh, operations folks. Anyway. This is a special episode because we have a second guest. We do. And it's an exciting guest because it's someone that you've wanted to bring on the program for a while now. So I will let you introduce our next guest. Yes, it is Jonathan Koo, or you may know him as Junk on Twitter. He does not work for an airline or an airframer. He is a self-proclaimed not aviation geek. Though I think he's full of crap because he definitely is, but he travels all over the world, does so pretty inexpensively, and I'm usually super jealous. I think he's on an airplane right now, actually. He is, yes. As we record right now, yeah, he is. And he told us a little bit about how he does it all and why he continuously keeps me super jealous about it all. So let's uh, take a quick break and then we'll uh, talk to Jonathan. And we're back. We're doing kind of a strange interview today. Someone that you may not have expected, but his name is Jonathan Koo or Junk on Twitter. You might know him as. Say hi, Junk. Hi, longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> so we wanted to have someone on the show that is not a pilot, is self-claimed not aviation geek, but does more flying in the back of airplanes than I have ever done in my life, and most people probably ever will in their life. And he's gone to some ridiculous places on some ridiculous airlines, and I kind of wanted to pick his brain a little bit to see where he's been, why he does it, and how he does it. So, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here, and honored. Oh, the honor is all ours, because I'm a big fan of yours, even though you won't admit it. But I like following your travel, because you end up in, like I said, ridiculous places. Like, name the last trip you were on. Croatia and Montenegro. See, two places I've never been and are not even on my radar. Ian, have you ever been to either? 
I've actually been to Croatia. I have not been to Montenegro what? yet. What? You blew up my bit here. I am very sorry. Wow. <laughs> but we can fast forward to to the next trip because I don't think either of us have that on our radar at all. No. What is it? To Moldova? Well, and then to Italy, but people have been to Italy, but I'm starting off in Moldova. Nice. And you have no real airline of choice, right? You kind of just go wherever. Pretty much. So for a long time, I used to be a United and Star Alliance person, which is really easy at my home airport of SFO, because especially for international, like for the West Coast, you can't, like, there's really no other choice, I think. Yeah. But lately, especially since they devalued their mileage program, I've just turned to be a free agent. And now I just fly whatever's cheap. And this summer it happens to be a lot of SkyTeam airlines. So I'm doing a lot of SkyTeam this year. And actually did a lot of SkyTeam last year. But yeah, that I'm pretty much open to whatever cheap fare comes my way. You've ended up on Air France quite a lot, haven't you? Yes. And we'll actually be flying them on next Tuesday. Yes. On your favorite A380? On my favorite. Upper deck, of course. In the back. You've been flying Air France a lot. Have you been hit by any of the strikes, either airline or air traffic control? No, knock on wood. I have not. Wow. Yeah. Impressive. I have like a news alert set up for Air France, like like a Google news alert that, you know, emails me every day <laughs> just, so I, just so I can be on top of any situation that might arise. It's like for the trains in France, how they have a schedule published months in advance of when they'll be on strike. Right. Right. It's ridiculous. So I want to talk a little about how you do it, how you find these ridiculously low fares and how you end up in Montenegro and and Bosnia and wherever else it is you've ended up, Georgia, the country, not state. How do you do it? Yeah. So a lot of it is the flight deal. I love their Twitter account um, well, and their website, but mostly their Twitter account, which really got me started on keeping an eye on the cheaper fares that come my way. And I'm pretty flexible as to where I go. So the whole point of the whole reason behind my whole my traveling habit is because I work from home. And that means I can work from anywhere as long as the internet connection is good and I can be awake during East Coast US business hours. So even though I live in California now, I still work East Coast hours. So as long as I can work East Coast hours, I can work pretty much anywhere. And for the most part, that usually means Europe because that has the best time zone difference. So I can, I work from like three to 11, which is nine to five East Coast. This is like Central Europe. And so then I can go to sleep and wake up in the morning, explore till like two o'clock, then go back to the Airbnb or wherever and start work at three. I don't know how you do it. I, I watch you. I Actually, I scroll through my tweets after I wake up after eight, nine hours. And first, you're out there the whole day in the morning doing your adventure then you go back, you work your eight hours during the day, and then you like seemingly go back out and do it all again in the evening. Like, I, how do you do it? Yeah, I, well, I think that's sort of like the time playing tricks on you because, like, after I work at eleven, I like go straight to bed. I pop a Benadryl and what is that melatonin, and yeah, I'm out like a light. Then I wake up at seven or eight, have a coffee, like a much needed coffee, and then go back out during the day. The worst is Asia because then I have to work at night. So I will actually work from like eight to five at night or eight at night to five in the morning, then go out until like noon or like lunchish. Then I'll sleep like from one to seven. And yeah, it sounds horrible and it kind of is, but it's actually a little bit nicer because it is the exact same schedule as when I'm at home. So I 
go to sleep. I wake up at six o'clock. I start work at six fifteen because that's like nine fifteen East Coast time. Yeah. So if I work in Asia, it sounds horrible uh, because of the schedule, and it it yeah. does have a bit of a toll, but it works out better because of the like I don't get jet lag. Do you ever take a like actual when you're traveling? Do you ever take off from work and just say, okay, this is what most people would consider a vacation? Yeah. So my work has a quote unquote unlimited vacation policy which doesn't really mean much because I'm if familiar you're, with that one. Yeah. yeah. Cause if you're busy, you're busy and you can't really just say, I'm just going to take off for a month, but I'll try to take off maybe like two or three weeks a year. And the last time I did that was earlier this year when I went to Laos for a week. And that was mostly because I couldn't reliably count on the internet in Laos to like hold up for work. And I was right. So I'm glad I took vacation, but yeah, I'll usually try to do it a, a couple times and knock on wood. The next time I do it, it will be in September when I go to New Zealand, mostly because Australia, New Zealand, the time zone is like really bad. So yeah. Yeah. You've, it, your work policy has definitely enabled you to see some places and stay places that I've never been. And even if I would, I've, I'd be there for like a day because I'm always, you know, rushing back to get to the office when... Your yeah. office is anywhere, which I used to have, which was admittedly quite nice. Yeah. So it's a little bit different for me because I really only have like half a day to do things. So when I spend like a week at a location, that really doesn't mean like a week's worth of sightseeing or getting out there. It really means like maybe one weekend day and like a bunch of half days. So um, that's usually how I work. I fly out on a Friday after work. And because work for me ends at 2.30, I can take an afternoon flight to Europe. So then I get there at some point on Saturday. I will come back the Sunday after that Sunday. So I'll spend a week out and then, yeah, I fly out Sunday morning from wherever. And then I'm back at home Sunday afternoon or evening. And then I like resume my normal schedule for that Monday. So when you're looking for places to go, is it find a good deal you know, cheap airfare or, you know, an amazing hotel or something like that and build out from there and say, okay, where else could I go? I'm here for, you know, the the fair rules say I have to stay for, you know, seven days or whatever. And I'm here. So I might as well go to other places or do you try and build it all together? Say, you know, I'm good. Okay. I'm going to do Moldova and Italy on this trip. Yes. So the way I did my last trip and this next trip are kind of perfect examples. So uh, the flight deal tweeted out, maybe I think this was in January that there was uh, there was some good sky team deals for like peak summer travel. So it was like in the high 400s round trip to Europe. So I jumped on those in January and the tickets were so this one was to or was this was it Paris or Amsterdam? Anyways, it was some city. Oh, no, sorry, Geneva. That's where it was. So there was a cheap ticket to Geneva. Then from Geneva, I took an easy jet flight to Croatia and then took easy jet back to Geneva, spent a night there each way, like in and out, and then flew back on the cheap ticket. Because if you wait for a cheap fare to certain places like to Moldova, it's not going to happen. So this one, this next one is a cheap fare to Munich. So it's uh, I'm flying San Francisco, Paris, Munich, and then I am taking Air Moldova to uh, Kijanao and then flying no, sorry, Lufthansa to Chisinau, and then Air Moldova from Chisinau to Verona, taking a train from Verona to Turin, then flying Sky Team from Turin back to Munich, 
and then the cheap flight back home. And I hope your TripIt is updated. It is. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> but yes, it's usually a, a cheap fare to somewhere. I mean, of course, I'll try to use the cheap fare and stay in that city. But especially now that I've been doing it for quite a while, there's like the places that I want to go to aren't necessarily accessible by the normal spate of cheap fares that comes around uh, every now and then. So I have to supplement it with low cost carriers, which is totally fine. Like there was the recent deal to uh, from Saigon on Qatar Airways in business class, which I took advantage of, which is like the one time a year that I might fly business. So I basically took low cost carriers within Southeast Asia to get around. Uh, so that was like the Laos trip and so on. So you bring up the fact that you're taking advantage of, of very low fares, which with you know, ex-US carriers, we're starting to talk about, you know, very low frills, even on, you know, some of the legacy carriers. And then you're talking about low-cost airlines. I mean, what are you packing? So I usually pack in a carry-on. Uh, so I have like one rollerboard carry-on and one backpack. The backpack carries my work laptop and my like day bag that I carry around, carry around during the day. Like the rollerboard carries like I try to pack in five to six days worth of clothes because I usually always book an Airbnb that has a washing machine. So I'm not too concerned about packing enough clothes to last the entire trip. And if I'm lucky, I could pack in a second pair of shoes, like an extra pair of shoes. But pretty much I hardly ever check a bag, even when the bag checking is free, just because I don't like having to wait for it. That's like one of my pet peeves. Yeah. And so I, especially on these like low cost carrier flights, I usually buy the bag just in case I need, like they make me like gate check it or something. Cause I had like the fr very first time I took a low cost carrier that happened to me, they, they like weighed it at security and they wouldn't let me through. So then I had to like pay like the $50 or whatever to check my little rollerboard. So now I like book the bag, but lately I've tried not to. And I just booked the option that gets me like on EasyJet, it's the speedy boarding option, which lets you board first and sort of guarantees you overhead space. And in that case, I've found, again, knock on wood, that they don't like inspect those bags as much. Like they don't like direct you to the bag sizer. So that's like slightly cheaper than checking a bag, plus you get a seat. Right. So a couple of days ago, you sent me a list of airline IATA codes that you have flown in the past or in the future. I do not know a good deal of them. So I want to run down this list and see if Ian knows what they are. Oh, boy. Oh, this boy. This going to be oh fun. Boy. All right. The first one's an easy one. For you. For you, it's – well, The is it still just German wings? It used to be German wings. Now it's – So is it now over to Euro wings? I think it's nothing now. Yeah. It's, it's nothing? Uh, defunct. Okay. I think, yeah. What's it was next? Euro wings for a little while, but now it's something. DS. 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 That's EasyJet, but the Euro EasyJet. Ah, EasyJet Switzerland. When did you fly Switzerland. them? That was from Geneva to Croatia. Of course, of yeah. course. Next up is Quebec Hotel, QH. QH. I have no idea. Nor do I. It doesn't even come up in the IATA list. It doesn't come up in the list, which is weird, but it's Air Kyrgyzstan. If you look up Air Kyrgyzstan, <laughs> <laughs> it shows up. But Yeah. <laughs> Are they not even an IATA airline? What's the deal with that? I don't know. I was, I was, well, I was glad that the plane actually showed up at the airport 
and also glad that nothing like bad happened on the flight. Yeah. So let me ask you this: you you've been on some some interesting airlines, Air Kyrgyzstan for one. Has there ever been a time where you thought to yourself, "I'm in over my head"? So there were some teeny airlines that have like I don't even know what it is, but it was a plane with a propeller. And (laughs) that doesn't help, but it was very, I don't even want to say low frills. It was like very sparse. And I don't remember what it was, but it was somewhere in Southeast Asia a couple years ago. And yeah, luckily, again, everything turned out fine, but I did feel like, oh, well, maybe I won't do this again. Yikes. It was an airplane with a propeller. It wasn't. Yes. Yes. Let's do a few more quick iotic codes. Right. QZ yes. to close this out. QZ. QZ is somewhere, oh, I don't know. Indonesia, AirAsia. Oh, okay. QV. QV, still don't know. Lao Airlines. All One right. more. BL. One more. B at Bravo Lima. Yep. That is, no, it's not Jetstar. It is Jetstar Pacific. Oh, it's just okay. Jetstar Pacific. Half credit. I'll, I'll take it. Very good. I did not do well on this quiz. You did better than I did. <laughs> or you, I would have done. you flew them. <laughs> I know. But if you if you gave me the list again, I'd be like, oh, I have no idea. Yeah, they have planes. They have engines. Whatever. Right. It's fine. We're going to send you off into the world so that you can fly a bunch more airlines we've never heard of, and then come back and we'll do this quiz again. Okay. Sounds good. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This was a lot of fun. And definitely, definitely, definitely follow Jonathan on on Twitter, Jonk, J-O-N-K. And that's Twitter and Instagram, right? That's right. So you get the words and the pictures. Definitely do that because his travels are impressive, to say the least. And always some good... You know, some good local tips and, and history. And I have to say, you find some of the cool stuff I've ever seen when you're out there. So thank you for going to the places we can't get to and doing what you're doing. We really enjoy following. Well, thanks for following. It, it means a lot because I just tweet just because I like it, not because I care for an audience. So the fact that I have someone actually reading them, it, it means a lot to me. So thank you. Yeah, I know I follow it closely. And there have been times where I've thought, you know, if I could pay him to like tag along on his trips, I would totally do that. So if whatever you do professionally doesn't work out, you should probably do that. <laughs> Thanks. And I'm sorry if you heard a dog in the back. That's Aubrey saying hi. Hi, Aubrey. Yeah. We should have like, you know, a, a resident animal or something like that for future podcasts. Wolf. Jason, you're hired. (laughs) Excellent. Jonathan, thanks again so much for joining us. Again, he is Jonk, J-O-N-K, on Twitter and Instagram. Well, thank you. Safe travel, sir. Thanks. I, too, am jealous of Jonathan, and he's enjoying a flight to Paris right now. And on his fave plane. On his fave plane. And we're going to hear more about his stuff. I mean, definitely, if you're not following him on Twitter, it's a great thing to do. Because, I mean, like we talked about, he not only does some great travel writing, but he finds the coolest stuff wherever he goes. And I'm always excited about what he's going to be doing. Yeah. I don't know how he does it. And he always makes me feel woefully unprepared (laughs) when I travel. That's fair. That's fair. So Level is flying little planes and Level is now flying other big planes. 
Yeah, that's one way to put it. That's the story. Just a couple of days ago, IAG is like, yeah, Level's going to start flying short haul and they're going to do it in like two weeks. Oh, okay. So basically they're picking up some of the scraps of Air Berlin and Nikki, painting them in, in Level livery, and they'll be operating them out of Vienna, I think. Yeah, out of Vienna, and then I forgot the AOC that they're using, or the name of the company. Yeah, it's weird. So to book a flight, you have to do it on the Welling page, and you have to find a flight marketed as level, but it's operated by some abbreviation that I can't remember right now. Yeah, Ansia or something like that, but it's, yeah, it's a that's level it. it's, it's something weird. Flight. So it's basically IAG's uh, Vienna subsidiary, Austrian subsidiary. It's But- yeah, they're more more European ULCC flying by a major carrier. And last night they began taking over the Open Skies routes. That's right. So they they took over the the Paris Montreal. I think was the the first one. Yeah, and I think Newark. Well, I think Newark's their only other destination. So so off they go with it. Was a triple seven two hundred, I believe. Is it? Yeah, I, I think so. In uh, or was it any? I could be wrong. We could get some mail on this one. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure it's an A330. A330. I, I don't know why I thought 777-200. I don't know. And I, I believe they're still technically operated by Iberia anyway. So the whole thing is kind of confusing. If you haven't been paying attention, you could be forgiven for being somewhat confused. And if you have been paying attention and you're still confused, you can still be forgiven. Yeah, Level has been operating – has been operated by Iberia – but the short haul will be operated by this ANSEC or whatever it is. But the uh, routes are taking over from open skies are being – I don't know. I don't know either. I, I've stopped caring. Let's move on. Okay. <laughs> Let's close out the show with something cool. A while ago, Movell Lab, which is a uh, design and creative firm that focuses on mobility, uh, how – people move around the planets, did this cool thing called Roads to Rome. And they tried to answer the question, do all roads lead to Rome? And they mapped out you know, European continent-wide road structure and how you can drive. And they did it for North America and Asia and other places too. And then they said, well, okay, well, what about you know crossing the oceans? Do can you can you all where can you get to Rome from? And so they they asked us about getting some some flight data, and we said that sounds fun. And they went to work on this amazing visualization called Flights to Rome. Uh, and if you haven't checked it out, I highly suggest you do because not only is it very interesting to see, it's absolutely beautiful what they've done with the data. And and I think that the highest compliment was someone on Twitter said, I can't tell if this is string and paper or if it's computer generated. And, and I thought that was really cool. So it's called Flightstrome. We'll put a link in the show notes. And it's something that, that there's an interactive map that you can play around with. So you can find out how to get from you know anywhere to, to anywhere else uh, via the interactive map. Uh, so a lot of fun and something very cool to see. Cool. This was a busy episode. Yeah. I like the, the uh, next item we have on the list that just says whatever else. <laughs> Do we have anything else or are we done? I think we're done. I think this has been a busy episode. I mean, two yeah. guests, a lot happened this week. There's a giant whale flying around. We're tracking a lot of flights. Ugh, creepy whale. You know, <laughs> a giant creepy whale flying around. Well, not flying yet. It'll be flying soon. 
and there's half naked people running around running around the ramp in Atlanta. So I mean, it's as usual. Busy week all around. Yeah, let's wrap it up and go get a drink. I think we should leave it there. There you go. Episode thirty-five. That's a wrap. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with almost always Jason Rabinowitz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon.